This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. Today, we're joined by Meredith Weiss to uncover the mysteries of hybrid electoral authoritarian regimes and find out why they prove so durable. So welcome again to another episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, with me in studio is uh, Meredith Weiss. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. We're, uh, we're happy to have you, I guess, back to our campus. It's been a while. Yes. But uh, um, we're delighted to have you. Uh, you spent time with our graduate students. You gave us a, a great talk uh, called uh, Roots and Resilience, Party Machines and Grassroot, Grassroot Politics in Southeast Asia. Now, this is part of an upcoming book project? Correct, yes. When can we see the light of day? Uh, Mid-next year, mid-2020. Okay, okay. Same title? So far, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Always subject to change in the production process, but for now, yes, that's the title. Okay, good. And um, yeah, so so I've, uh, you know, I've been, uh, I'm a follower, uh, an armchair follower as opposed to you of sort of Malaysia and Singapore politics. So I was really excited to to hear what you had to say, um, and especially your your kind of take on um, the the how do we view these how do we view these really interesting polities that um, where there's kind of seems to be endemic uh, kind of authoritarian uh, rule there. And so um, my first question is really how have uh, I guess first maybe to draw back to um, the field itself, how have studies of um, uh, regimes been organized traditionally um, and how are, how do you think about them? What, what is the way that um, we think about states and how they're organized? It's a difficult question in some ways in as much as the study of states in Southeast Asia has historically been a little bit more interdisciplinary than the study of states more broadly in political science. So within Southeast Asia, we do have people like Ben Anderson, for instance, who studied the idea yeah. of power and and the way that the state is not just a function of its boundaries, but also of the authority it asserts over its citizens. Uh, Tongshai Winichakul, as a historian, also develops that idea of understanding what's inside and outside the boundaries and what the nature of power and the nature of authority is. From a different perspective, uh, we have others like Clifford Geertz, who's seen by political science writ large as an important interpretivist in political science, but who's, of course, an anthropologist of Southeast Mm -hmm. Asia. So some of the foundational works for understanding what a state does, how it's structured, what sort of conflicts it resolves or sharpens, all of those things have come from different perspectives. Within the discipline writ large, though, the study of the state has largely been uh, a study of institutions and structures. So the issues of political culture and history that guide Southeast Asianists don't always feature to the same extent within the discipline. In, in your in your research, you talk about um, uh, a hybrid regime. And so what is what what is a hybrid regime? A hybrid regime is just another term for electoral authoritarianism, which is itself often pretty jargonistic. So the, I say that for two reasons. One, because the average person on the street who's not a political scientist might not recognize the term electoral authoritarian, but hybrid just has its own inherent meaning. And the other reason is that when we say electoral authoritarian, it's not 
the the noun there isn't democratic, it's authoritarian. It's assuming that it's yeah. somehow lesser than. So there's a normative slant to a lot of the study of regimes in the US and elsewhere of understanding democracy as being the goal. So we talk about backsliding if a state has been moving, a regime has been moving toward democracy and then moves away. And yeah. so that that that's its own debate. But really, the this I in, at times prefer the term hybrid because it suggests the the different combinations that are possible, that it might be something that's more authoritarian, more democratic. At the same time, the term in the literature in political science more commonly is electoral authoritarian. And I'm guessing in for a, in a kind of a in a public sphere that flies in the face probably a lot of like lazy assumption that voting is the opposite of authoritarianism, right? Is that correct? And that's that assumption holds in Southeast Asia as well. So Mahathir Mohammed, now again the Prime Minister of Malaysia, when he had previously been the Prime Minister, would say that when you vote every five years, which is at the general election, that's your exercise of democracy, and that in between you really are not supposed to have much of a say in policy or politics. That civil society right. shouldn't be meddling in politics, or they use the phrase of a thorn in the flesh of the politicians. And so this notion that elections are tantamount to democracy, yeah is a convenient shorthand, but also incorrect. Most states now have elections. So even truly authoritarian states may still have elections. The elections don't really determine anything. Is that, is that, is that largely conditioned by um, those constituencies within that state? Or is it external pressure? Is it both? Is it? I think it's both. There's a f- uh, still fairly recent book um, um, that argues that a key issue in the transition of electoral authoritarianism of those states moving towards democracy, for instance, has to do with how how much Western influence they have or what, what are the trade ties that push them in certain directions, for instance. Um, but I think there's a combination of trying to fit with international norms and avoid international censure or sanctions by not holding elections such that all sorts of states go through the motions of doing so. And elections, there's a whole literature, not a huge literature, but a literature on what purposes elections serve in authoritarian states. So we associate elections in a democracy, most importantly, with choosing our leaders. If you have a single party state or a dominant party state, or if competition is skewed in other ways, elections aren't really choosing your leaders, but they may still help to alert authoritarian party leaders of what grievances are in society or of how mobilized an opposition is or of where they're vulnerable or of they might be a moment for expression of their mandate of saying, look, we won 98%. We are super popular. So in other words, there's yeah. there's a bunch of both really practical functions and more rhetorical functions that elections can still serve, even when amongst those functions is not choosing your leaders or holding them accountable. So we know, so we know that they exist, but... Um... Why are they? Why are authoritarian electoral regimes durable? All sorts of reasons. So the simplest explanation would be that generally, if one party or one individual has unfettered access to the resources of the state, he or she can use those resources to make people happy, to purchase support in different ways. So that might not be direct okay. vote buying, but it could be through really extensive social welfare policies, for instance. Um, people so, have needs in the state exactly, is filling them. Exactly, which is highly responsive. It can be highly accountable. It, it's, in other words, this isn't. It's not that it's all bad, but it does 
it does limit the possibility for democratic turnover. So representation is not amongst the goods this estate is providing. So that that's a really common argument for why these states are stable is that they um, achieve development. So they may have performance legitimacy or they distribute the goods of the state in ways that are politically useful as well as probably very practically beneficial for people. Um, other states or other regimes may use coercion to maintain their power. So that can be either throwing opponents in jail or killing them, or it can be through perhaps subtler methods of uh, limiting civil liberties, limiting the ability of opposition parties to form or to raise funds or to contest, keeping uh, one thing popular in Southeast Asia, keeping election periods, the campaign periods really short. So you announce, in parliamentary yeah. system, you may announce a, it's a floating election date, so you don't know when the election's coming, and then when it comes, you have a couple of weeks. So doing all of those different sorts of things can all help to sustain an electoral authoritarian regime in power. And makes it, <clears throat> and makes it difficult to, to get out of the authoritarian electoral exactly. regime, and which is what your research focuses on. So, right. so we've talked about the kind of what these um, states are like in, in, in general. How about... Um, can you give us a snapshot of of Malaysia and Singapore in particular, your kind of two cases? Sure. So Singapore is considered a hegemonic electoral authoritarian regime. You do have opposition parties, quite a number of them. They're allowed to register. They're allowed to function. They can fundraise. But they face a lot of constraints in the sorts of ties that they can build, their, their access to public space, uh, their access to um, communicating their views through different media or through different sorts of events. Uh, they also face um, difficulties if they're in office that they may not be able to have the same um, availability of resources to support their local communities, for instance, that a PAP, mm -hmm. a dominant party legislator, may have, all of those sorts of things. So those are the constraints on opposition parties and politicians. In addition, larger curbs on civil liberties help to keep civil society fairly constrained as do rules on whether and norms as to, on whether or not civil society organizations are allowed to have links with political parties or whether political parties will be seen as doing something that's problematic if they forge links with civil society. So the constraints may go in both directions. And so that, to some extent, also just makes it harder to build a broader-based opposition coalition or opposition movement. At the same time, the PAP, the party that's been in power since uh, shortly before Singapore achieved full sovereignty, is genuinely popular. It's not purely coercive. This is a, a hegemonic electoral authoritarian state, but it's one in which the PAP governs by consent rather than by coercion. So there is an, an element of coercion. There have been political arrests and that sort of thing, but that's not the dominant thing sustaining the party. I, I feel like um, from the outside, the kind of the, uh, the kind of like... Um you know, <clears throat> newly woke undergraduate approach to sort of is, you know, that these are just like 1984 over there, you know, and it's this uh, or, or very Orwellian. I'm not I'm not I'm not advocating in their defense, but I'm saying like talk to talk to Singaporeans and Malaysians like it's 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 much more complicated. In some way there 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 is consent and much broader consent than you would imagine from, you know, and maybe an undergrad general poli science textbook. There's both, and that's the thing. So you can say, and even people who support the PAP's achievements may still mm -hmm. resent the extent to which it curbs free exercise of voice and association, for instance. Yeah. So you can say, wow, this party has done just objectively excellent things with the Singapore economy, but still say, all right, what if you would rather they focus more on equity and reducing inequality rather than overall growth? 
is there a forum in which you could express that that preference? And so this is part of why we have a limited space for opposition parties. It's not just a question of rules that prohibit mobilization, but also it's really hard to carve out a niche when you know that overall, there is, of course, dissent. There are people who do not like what the PAP has done, who do not feel that they benefit, who don't think that it's pursued the right priorities. Right, and that's not what you're saying, but yes. but But the majority, actually, their grievance is less with has the PAP done a decent job than mm-hmm. with, well, why can't Singapore also have full democratic civil liberties? And so the challenge then for an opposition party is saying, look, we're not going to overturn what's happened, yeah. but you should vote for us. But then why? Why vote for that party? And so some of them have started with campaigns like saying, uh, one of them campaigned last time on your voice in parliament. This idea, And another that, that actually has won seats has called itself as being a co-driver for the PAP, that they're not going to try to take over the wheel, but they just want to be the one to poke the PAP awake when it seems to be falling yeah. asleep. And so that's a really different thing than saying, vote for us to govern. It's saying, we want at least to have some alternate voices so there's not too much groupthink in the PAP-run parliament. And that's a hard message to make because then why should your constituency be the one to be seen as troublemakers, for instance? Why not some other constituency be the one that gets the opposition member? Now, the contrast with Malaysia, since you yeah. initially asked yeah. for both these states, Malaysia has also has a full range of opposition parties. They're, they're quite vibrant, but a much more dense civil society and a much more actively engaged civil society that plays a partisan role as well. So you have much deeper and uh, more and diverse electorates. Yeah yeah, 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 diverse electorate, really different sorts of issues. The parties can run a wider gamut. There's some controls yeah. on sort of what sort of messages one can make in Singapore that don't apply in Malaysia. Media are more varied and more open in Malaysia than in Singapore. Um, the mass media in both are state-dominated. Uh, Malaysia, that's changing a bit now with this last election in 2018. But in both, you have uh, social media and alternate online media as having really changed the context in which politics happens, because you have hmm. just access to other information, which previously could be much more readily suppressed. It's not like it's not like state. There's not the one channel. The state TV is not the only no. organ where people are getting their. They're probably getting it from right. Malaysia Kini or <laughs> a, 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 a whole bunch of spaces. Yeah, yeah, and um, and from overseas and from yeah. everywhere else. So right. I mean, Singapore is anglophone. So it's, it's yeah. you can't really and shut from, the door and from Twitter and from each other. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So it's. Do you think that uh, this it's kind of a peculiar case? And you, there are some other, of course, international examples, but this peculiar Southeast Asian case, does it make it harder for um, folks who are, who do study the electoral tradition in, in the West or trying to look for comparative examples? They they don't is it is it sort of conspiracy theory is it understudied because it's 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 this uniqueness about it or? i will always think that southeast asia is <laughs> understudied just because it should be more but um the, i think the larger issue is not so much that people negate it or whatever else or, or ignore it it's just there's very little cross regional comparison so people mm-hmm. t- part of that's just the vagaries of various studies that people tend to think of you know your immediate points of reference for me, as a Southeast Asianist, if I'm going to be thinking, oh, where can I compare these states to? I'll first think through the Philippines and Indonesia yeah. and so forth, because they're cases that are so much yeah. more known to me. And then beyond that, I'll think of Taiwan or Japan or maybe South Korea as, oh, OK, Asia. That's, that's really widening my gaze. But I'm less likely to know enough about states of, for instance, Africa to be right. able to that might have a similar colonial history, mm-hmm. might have similar... 
I guess so we're guilty of it as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I am not exempt from this. So there are a few people who do make those comparisons, but not a lot. Um, at the same time... Collaborative work could be the it, it, door I, of that. Yeah. I'm a big yeah. fan of that, yeah. Um, but then there's also my stopgap measure for myself, which I'm not the only one who does this, is just to use secondary literature. So there's a yeah. lot on issues of regimes and transitions in Mexico and Japan and Taiwan and elsewhere, for instance, that was really useful for me in this project in help to, helping to conceptualize what is distinctive about these states and what actually looks just like electoral authoritarianism elsewhere, but then also more broadly, what are we missing when we look at these regimes? Because that was really a part of what I was trying to get at. It was my own sense of there's a, the lacuna here is that I don't think I'm getting a good grasp on what sustains yeah. these states, that we tend for these normative biases or because it's easier to measure and, and so forth, to look at what, what Shedler calls the menu of manipulation, these very distinct, discrete steps that states may put in place to limit opposition, to protect the dominant party or the authoritarian state. And so here, what's distinctive is that we have strong party states, as opposed to like Indonesia and the Philippines, which are not, um, with different sorts of civil society. And then the other part that I thought was missing, which I'm still not finding a lot of in the literature on elsewhere as well, I think it's more of a disciplinary trend than an area one, is something of a failure to bring political culture more seriously into the study of regimes, that we understand that legitimacy is part of it, that it's not just coercion that sustains hybrid states, these electoral authoritarian states, but beyond quantifying and classifying and naming specific controls, how can we understand the average citizen's understanding of that regime? Right. Um, and I guess the the in, in thinking about for the free average citizen how these how these um, regimes maintain themselves, uh, you bring up um, clientelism, patronage. Uh, patient-client relationships. How how do these? So give us a how how does it how does it operate, and and why why is this so essential to the maintenance of, of sort of authoritarian um, states? I think you could have authoritarian states that maintain themselves without some of these features, but I see them as useful at least in a state that's trying to maintain control without having to resort to coercion. So in other words, you could curry favor and curry personal support, or you can throw people in jail. These are states that, again, you have a handful of political prisoners, and at times more than that in Singapore. But in general, it's a state that, that governs, that gains support by some other means. And I, I find that is pretty generalizable across hybrid regimes. But so patron clientelism was a dominant theory or artifact that one would study in Southeast Asia earlier on. So works on Southeast Asia, Carl Landay, Jim Scott, and others really helped to bring the study of patron-client ties into political science in particular, but not just political science, really in the 1960s and 70s as part of a rash of studies of peasant societies or peasant politics. A lot of this was driven by attention to the Vietnam War and whether this should be yeah. understood as a neo-imperialist conflict or as a peasant uprising and so forth, all of those sorts of debates. And so that literature on patron-client ties was largely initially associated with landlord-peasant relationships uh, feudal politics, something that was expected to die out in these new states. Jim Scott built on that his literature on patron clientelism and started writing also about machine politics. And I came back to that literature specifically because it had fallen so much off the radar in the meantime. And so he was looking at these 
newer states of Africa and Asia in particular, these post-colonial states that had parties developing alongside a newly enfranchised electorate before the state could offer a lot of services, uh, while citizens' partisan affiliations were still fairly fluid, but perhaps connected to a longer-standing so-called traditional patron, yeah. someone in their, their village or whatever else who had provided services. And so we f- see these things as developing with the polity, but expected to fall away. There's a teleological notion to that earlier literature on machine politics and patron clientize that just as machine politics characterizes U.S. cities of the 19th century, once the state starts providing social security benefits, for instance, and starts mm-hmm. providing unemployment insurance and starts regulating labor, you don't need the party to be the, the one that protects and integrates new citizens into the political uh, landscape. And so parties themselves except in Albany, where I'm from, parties generally <laughs> tend to weaken over time or serve a different purpose. And so my argument... Is a, so you say, is it, is it an exaggeration to say that the, the, the parties are the state? Or the party is the state? The uh, party tries to stand in for the state or tries okay. to... The party, the party will masquerade as the state to some extent. Okay. So we'll brand state services Delivering. as party services. Yeah. yeah. So you actually hand the check out from the state at a party service center. I mean, this segues maybe to my next question. It would, the the I thought it was really fascinating. I really never thought about it. Did it seen it in practice? Never thought about it. But like the um, like the brim cash cash payments in uh, Malaysia, or the some of the some of the um, sort of the programmatic promises of these. Uh, so give us give us a sense of how that that those work as part of the patronage network. Okay, so the one of the difficult things here is that these are definitionally programmatic policies. So for BRIM, for instance, this is a Bantana Rakyat Satu Malaysia, the One Malaysia People's Aid. This is um, a, an unconditional cash transfer program that was implemented uh, about, about six years ago now. And anyone who meets an income qualification is eligible for BRIM. The question is not asked, for whom did you vote to get it? So by a, by a basic quantification of these policies or classification of these policies are contingent clientelism versus these are not, it doesn't fit. But the way that the policy, that the program is implemented exaggerates a partisan patronage-like component, makes it appear to be patronage, even though technically it's programmatic, appear to be particularistic. And that is to say that when Brin was introduced, citizens generally went to their party, the BN, the the governing coalition, Mm -hmm. service center to collect their check. Or they were given it in these um, ceremonies where they come and they get their check. And you still see these, not so much for BRIM, which is now direct deposited, but you could see these in both um, the BN parties and the Pakatan parties that are now in government, where they'd have checks for entrepreneurs, these small grants to help small and medium enterprises, or checks um, or other benefits to help with uh, different healthcare costs, or whatever it might be. And there's a ceremony at the service center and you go and your MP or your state legislator is there and they say a few words and they hand everybody a check and it's all smiles and so forth. And it's good. You're getting services. You're getting something. But this is actually a programmatic policy. It's not actually particularistic. If you support a different party, though, yeah. you may feel reluctant to go to that service center to collect your check. So it makes a programmatic policy appear to be patronage. And, if, and, and conversely, if you voted differently but you go to get that check, you might – 
think about how you're going to vote next time. Exactly. Exactly. Because somebody has just given me money. So, So it's really, this is one of the really unusual, I think, aspects of these states is the ways in which they actually can pursue broad programmatic goals, but brand them to partisan benefit. And that, I suggest, is related to just how long the same party has been dominant. So this isn't... So it's personalized that way? It's personalized and it's just entrenched over time, that they've been able to innovate to figure out ways to do things. When you're looking at decades of single-party dominance, you find that it's it becomes ever harder to separate out what is the state and what is the party. So, so the so in thinking about like say an American example by contrast, it, say things that uh, uh, welfare benefits or or tax relief. These are things that would might might can translate into money into someone's pocket at a certain age, income level. But it's it's not so obviously that the hey the the Republican or the Democratic Party is delivering this to your pocket. Like that Correct. that's the difference is that it's there's this. They're, it's Correct. personalized and it's very... Correct. Uh, and one of the odd things about this is that despite the fact that these are both these places are, are places in which the conventional wisdom is that these are depoliticized societies and people don't really care about politics, I don't find that to be the case at all. People talk about politics all the time. But it's also what it means to have a party, to be a party supporter or party member is really different. So in Malaysia or in Singapore, you you volunteer for the party. To volunteer for the party in Singapore might mean that once a week, every single week, you help run one of these Meet the People sessions, which might be from 8 p.m. till midnight or past then, of really intensive service delivery. You're greeting people, you're walking them in, you're hearing their grievances, you're writing letters of intercession. Uh, you do these walkabouts door-to-door through these massive housing block flats, the HDB, Housing Development Board flats. In Malaysia, there'll be Chirama, these... Uh, sets of political speeches you go you sit on the ground or on little plastic stools for hours and hours and you listen to speeches you know it's just really there's a level of engagement with the party it's a much more physical presence it's not just you know the u.s yeah you might watch the debates or you might have an affiliation but you're not necessarily engaging in the same way with the party so it's kind of an interesting parallel to so much of the rest of southeast asia where we have weaker parties that being a party member or party activist carries a lot more expectation of that there'll be a service center you'll know where it is most of the right. most of the time in, in, in basic singapore it's almost like it's what it means to be a singaporean like it's part of the maybe that's an overstatement but for for some many to some uh, yeah but that's and some of that is again the sort of long time dominant yeah. party system that the pap has been able to present its story as the singapore story and, and in it, fact it does, does that explicitly <laughs> And is it ingrained, I guess, and it also the message is also, say, if you're comparing it to, say, like Social Security benefits or Medicaid, um, the all the one party might talk about reducing it or getting rid of it or increasing it or whatever. But it is not like if this party go if, if you vote in an opposition party, like that goes away like that might that might entirely um, or perhaps, as you point to the the opposition party might, in fact, <laughs> appropriate the right. very, the very things that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, some of this, of course, is an artifact of a parliamentary versus a presidential system. So Mm -hmm. parliamentary Mm -hmm. systems are known for the possibility of more dramatic swings between policy agendas that um, uh, presidential systems like the U.S., uh, just because of the division of powers that the executive and the legislature are not fused in the same way, that you tend to have more incremental but more stable policy change. But at the same time, I don't think we have that same sense of branding. Like if we see, if a highway is built in the U.S., after it is built, no one is likely to remember under what administration or which party it was constructed. But in Malaysia, there would be a signboard there saying, 
another project of the Barisan Nacional government. You know, so it's branded with the party. It's permanent infrastructure. And so that sort of credit claiming, I don't think happens in the U.S. in the same way or in most other states. It's not that the U.S. is exceptional in that regard. What, uh, what strings are attached to, to state aid? What, what kind of um, the, the if, if institutions are, are they, they, need, they need to work through these networks, like are there expectations on, on what we would see as NGOs or other organizations that are like, what, what happens? How does that move differently? Um, it really varies by issue area and then also which country. So for Singapore, for instance, the state does want to have a certain share of what are termed their voluntary welfare organizations is a more commonly used term, VWOs. So groups to which the state can devolve some of the social service work that it needs to provide or that it needs to do. So these may be groups that are involved with different um, healthcare outreach or with outreach to different um, underprivileged communities divided by ethnicity or by income level, all of those sorts of things. And so those groups rely upon state funding for a large part of their work. They may also get private philanthropy, but they're really working with the state and um, are expected to be nonpartisan. And most of them will be quite fiercely so, but at the same time, if they're working with the PAP state, um, that may also help to shift you know, their own sense of what, what would be wise to say or to whom who they feel is really a credible partner. So we have other sorts of groups that are more activist organizations or that are, or that are more independent. So in Malaysia, for instance, you'll find a lot of service-related organizations, but that have a more oppositional stance. And part of it's just that Malaysia has a much more dense and much more um, varied civil society than Singapore does for all sorts of reasons. But some of those groups in Malaysia may find that if they choose to partner with the state for some program, that they find it's worth doing that that the state, the government may expect to have some say in the organization. So I remember um, a, a feminist activist who was involved with some women's organizations telling me some time back in Malaysia that I think her phrase was something like, they call it a dialogue, we call it a briefing. That, in other words, that there'll be some representative of the government who comes in to discuss the policy, but really to say, look, if you want the money, this is how you need to do it. So there can be then a sense of a constraint on autonomy and of the independent functioning of these groups, especially if they're then told, look, you need to have a representative of the government on your board or whatever else it might be. So this is a long-winded way of saying that um, NGOs really have to decide the extent to which they're prioritizing access to resources to provide services or autonomy in decision-making and affiliations in both places, but I think there's still more room for maneuver in Malaysia than in Singapore. There's also just more of a choice of partners yeah. in that sense. Um, one one uh, interesting assertion that I think uh, I think I think it's not over overstepping of of, of of a claim, uh, but uh, you say that uh, the fundamental change is unlikely um, in in some of these regimes and. Maybe I guess tell if it's that if that's true or not, um, and I guess the way that uh, one of the most enlightening parts is that the way that patronage affects opposition parties, and and, and maybe uh, this the recent election in Malaysia is maybe a case for talking about all of this. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to sound overly cynical. Just. <laughs> 
just somewhat heavily cynical. But I do think I, it's not that fund that change won't happen, but I think it will happen much more slowly than yeah. than those who are so exuberant at the fact of a change of government in Malaysia might expect. And of course, there have been so many changes where that is always it is always slower. Did than you resist the urge to self righteously say I told you so? I resist it sometimes <laughs> <laughs> because because I certainly heard and but any and, and from from Malaysian friends as well like. This is going to just yeah. going to change everything. I know. And now it'll change some things and then others right. won't. So that's to some extent just a truism. If we look at Indonesia, if we look at Cambodia, if we look at you know any state, that it's never this sort of mm-hmm. total transformation. And if we look at Japan, we can say, well, we just actually, that was just a temporary lapse. And now we've swung back to the same party, you know. So there's that aspect. But um, I think that I write a lot in the book about uh, what I call acculturation or authoritarian acculturation, which is the extent to which habits of engaging in politics adapt to the politics that's there. And so that applies to both citizens and political parties. So one of the problems, getting back to your initial question, with how regimes or how states are studied is that we tend to focus on who's in office, especially if we're looking at institutions and structures. We're seeing the institutions and structures that are put in place by a government. And so in doing so, we might not look at what is the nature of the opposition. How much is it reactive? How much is it proactive? How does it differentiate itself? Um, What sort of people end up in the opposition or how are leaders chosen? And so part of then the dilemma of expecting significant rapid political change at the moment of a transition is if we haven't looked at what are what is the nature of these opposition actors who are coming into government what is the nature of the claims that they're making why is it that they were able to win is it just a reactive vote against uh, rank corruption which was a big issue in the last election that's not necessarily a vote for change so one of the problems that Pakatan and Malaysia faces in particular is that some who voted for Pakatan voted because they really want a new sort of government, but a whole lot voted because they just didn't want Najib there. They want the same system, but they don't necessarily want okay, to change. Yeah. Even among those, and that's who a big want, difference. Oh yeah, and even among those who want change, who are already Pakatan supporters or opposition supporters or POS supporters, what specifically they want is not necessarily uniform and is not necessarily what uh, a democratic activists might say is the hallmark of liberalization or of progressive politics. So there isn't just someone, okay, this is this is the state, this is the opposition, and they flip and something dramatic changes. Each of these policies, the institutions need to be remade. So we have an institutional legacy on the one hand that needs to be dismantled yeah. and recreated. And that is always going to be hard. It's a constitutional process in a, in a hybrid state. If you come in by elections, you can't then well, you could, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be democratization to say, oh, we're going to do away with that now. And so just the simple mechanics of it make it already difficult. What more so when in Malaysia you don't have a massive majority, it's a narrow majority, and you don't have consensus on were you voting for or against? And among those who were yeah. voting for something different, what was that for? And so in that sense, just by those basic mechanics alone, I'm not making a, making Making a radical change in, de- in deliverables right. to you know, right. the, the population could, could be um, catastrophic for a party. Right, and especially all the more so when you've had the same party and the same regime, the same nature of governance in power for decades. So people are used to engaging with their state in a certain way, they expect certain things and not others of their state. So if you would like people to expect 
programmatic policies. No more of this pulling strings. No more of getting what you need from somebody you know as opposed to going to the state and wanting a neutral process. That may not be convenient when you want quick redress. You've got someone in the hospital and you need something, right. And so that changing the nature of politics itself, of political behavior from both parties and parties and politicians as well as voters, I I think that we need to understand that as a longer and much more complex process. Okay, so so let me let me play devil's advocate then. Um, you've got legislature legislators out on walkabouts. You've got the party like meeting with people in a way that we would never see here, and 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 hearing grievances and and trying to solve or write letters and solve problems. Um, doing pastoral duties. How is this uh, better or worse than uh, um, you know uh, liberal democracy? In a lot of ways, it's better. Okay, so liberal democracies can also have a large amount of, of this, um, someone right, called the village pump <laughs> politics. So there yeah. was a study of um, policymakers, politicians in, there was one in the UK and then there was one that was more comparative, but finding that often it's backbenchers or members of parliament without a lot of institutional power who tend to do a disproportionate amount of service work, even if they know that that's not going to pay off in terms of a cost-benefit mm-hmm. calculus of service for vote. Um, others have Other studies have found that, for instance, there may be a difference between women and men or, or whatever else. So lots of legislators in various places, including solid liberal democracies, in the official classifications at least, do more service work than makes yeah. sense in terms of vote payoffs. My argument is that this is really goes above and beyond in these places and that there's not something that there's not also voting on a legislative record. And so it's not that this is bad. This is highly accountable. It's highly responsive. It can deliver people goods that are what they really need at that time. The drawback is that there isn't a clear mechanism for accountability. What if you're not getting that? And mm-hmm. what you're promised, your alternative is offering the same thing, but you're not in the inner circle. So you may have an issue of inclusive versus exclusive networks. So what sort of access you have. You may not conceptualize your goals politically in broader terms, maybe purposefully narrow in the way that you understand what the state is to provide. You may not see redress to a state agency above and beyond your intercessor, your member of parliament or of the state legislature. Um, and so there are these different ways in which the full range of political options, a full range of voice, the, the political imagination may be stunted by this sort of deliberately narrow and personalized politics, especially if you're on yeah. the out. And, and it truly is complicated. In in uh, family of stay with it, in Indonesia, they, there was, uh, I can't remember which political scandal in the United States of, of, of kind of embezzlement and, um, and uh, the host father made the made sort of the joke that um, well in America they you know they'll, they'll they steal they'll steal the money and um, you'll never see it but here like they'll they'll put our kids through school they're going to steal yeah. the money but they're going to yeah 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 <laughs> they have is, obligations this is an argument I've made about the BN as well is that part of yeah. the reason that yeah people were really it's not that people didn't know that Najib was corrupt or that the BN was corrupt it was that they also benefited from it so within the party you know one of the arguments for why in 2013 despite the frank evidence of, of corruption why that didn't matter for the BN's chances was that all these other BN candidates were benefiting, that it wasn't just Najib. So there is a level of personal venality, like Najib himself was and his wife. I mean, they were extraordinarily rich, and that's come back to bite them. But a lot of this was really shared. It's this idea of, yeah, it's corrupt, yeah, it's problematic, but this is how we're giving you stuff. 
And so we're spa- splashing out on social services or on on payments or on yeah. gift hampers or whatever it might be. And so it does create a certain amount of buy-in. And it also means I have a former PhD student who wrote a thesis on Indonesia on clientelism and why it persists, who writes about the sort of hollowing out of state institutions post-democratization because working through clientless ties instead of anonymous impersonal state ties there's legibility to that you know when you can expect and what sort of payback is expected yeah so you know that relationship yeah it's long-standing it's iterative and so that's where where you have to rely on some you know terribly played clerk to actually do his or her job and yeah it goes off into the ether and then what happens so you can track it down they owe you you owe them and so the the result is that it's really hard to institutionalize different sorts of structures so maybe my last question is about um, civil society and all of this. So what what happens? How does it how does it look in these types of hybrid regimes, and uh, what are the implications? I think the comparison just of Singapore and Malaysia alone suggests that there can be huge diversity in how civil society looks. In Malaysia, civil society has combined forces with opposition parties in all sorts of ways. So that's done a couple of things. One is that it's meant that with this transition in government, so many within civil society have entered the state, have entered government, because you don't have a clear demarcation between Pakatan and its civil society bases. The same actually holds true to a significant and I think often understated effect extent on the Barisan side, where you have, for instance, these Malay nationalist groups that are so closely tied to Amno, or for PAS, now possibly mm. on the BN side as well, you have um, religious organizations, Muslim organizations, that are just so symbiotically tied with the party that some of that reflects the limited space for opposition politics that you need to expand beyond the party to have a presence when you can't actually secure office. Some of that actually suggests the extent to which the Malaysian regime has left space for independent association and for other claims to get out there. The contrast is Singapore. And so this, I think, is really a key part of why Singapore has a so much more hegemonic regime. It's not just about constraints on parties. It's also constraints on the rest of the civil society and political society of what sort of space is there for the articulation of grievances, for the mobilization of citizens around things that are not the PAP saying this is our issue of the day. It's so narrowly constrained in one. Yeah. And then just this um, either self-imposed, the self-censorship or regulatorily imposed reluctance of activists from civil society to take on a partisan cast to align with political parties or whatever else. And that's changing only very, very slowly. And it's more about sort of common media platforms and things like that than actual solidarity campaigns, for instance. But I think the the point here is that within a hybrid regime structure where you have electoral authoritarianism, the state has a greater capacity to limit civil society than in a more liberal democratic structure. The laws are in place. It's just how the the specifics of how they're enforced or understood really matters for the broader political possibilities. Well, Meredith, I really appreciate your your time and your insight, and we look forward to uh, to your to your new book coming out. Um, Thanks. Other 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 things you want to plug. Ah, I will plug a book series that I co-edit uh, under All Cambridge right. University Press. It's the Elements series, these very short books, no more than 30,000 words, on Southeast Asian politics that I edit together with Ed Aspinall. We have a series of 
country studies as well as a series of more thematic volumes. The most recently out is on the media in Southeast Asia by Charyan George and Gayatri Venkateswaran, and it is fantastic. So I strongly recommend them. They are easily downloadable from the Cambridge Elements website. And uh, and suitable for personal reading Everybody, for, for bedtime <laughs> stories for your kids. No, um, they're really we aim classroom as well. Yeah, classroom use as well as and and they can be combined in different ways in lieu of a textbook is one of the goals, but not just for undergraduate classrooms. So we yeah. really have tried very hard to have the authors write in an accessible way for policy, for people who are traveling to the region and want to know more about it, for classrooms, for um, graduate students as well as undergraduates. Each of the books incorporates original research and original analysis, even if they're also trying to give a broad introduction to the country or topic at issue. Okay, and we'll put a, we'll put a link in the description. Thank um, well, thank you again, and uh, we're excited to have you back soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. Crossroads would like to thank Hard Rock Ninjas for today's music and Jacob Darebant for production assistance.